You're listening to The Bridge Metro West, located at 7 Strathmore Road in Natick, Massachusetts. For more information about The Bridge Metro West, our weekly Sunday gatherings, and other events, go to www.bridgemetrowest.com. Bridge Metro West online family we welcome you as well thank you for spending this time with us we are honored that you would do so in-house family give our online family a hand if you're local you should be here but that's okay you can watch us on screen today but it's not the same you don't get to hear all the peanut gallery. Greta, there's a mic next to you, and I want to ask Greta to come up real quick. Look at all these balloons. Good morning. How are you? So glad you're here. You can see some balloons. We had some fun last night. We had family in. We just did down home barbecue and chilled out. It was really a wonderful time. We know not all of you could have been here. If you um, call this your home, and even if you're just visiting today, there's some water bottles in the back. Please help yourself on the way out. And I want to invite, please, Joanne, to come forward. And Natalie, wherever you are, Natalie. There she is. <laughs> they did such an extraordinary job setting the table for us. And the whole thing was about come to the table. We really felt that this was a time to pull people in together. And it worked out that we're, there were 72 uh, folks that came. And that is a number the elders in ancient Israel were gathered and they went up the mountain to meet with the Lord. And I felt that here last night. I felt his good pleasure. And those things happen when people serve with love towards their family, the broader community and excellence. And so we just wanted you to see these beautiful people that went above and beyond. And Jean to Cristofaro, you got pulled into this too. So by extension, by marriage, thank you, Jean. Natalie, that's for you. That's for you. Please, would you give them a warm thank you? We could not have done this without you. We love you. We love you. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And at this point, children, it's your time to go to classes. So we have the beautiful Jackie and Ashlyn for our elementary kids, and we'll take you back. All right, so Lord, we just release a blessing over these young ones, this new generation. Fill them with your love. Open up their capacity to perceive your presence. We speak life. We speak life. Where the enemy is trying to take them out, we say life over you today. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please give a warm welcome to Pastor Paul David Gidry. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, I overslept today. Everybody else did, but I did. Actually, my entire family did. I heard the talking, and 
animated voices and then I looked at the clock and it was late for me. And I don't, I don't ever need an alarm. I usually just wake up. Apart, it's also because I don't wake up early. I don't have to get up early. You know, I'm kind of the boss, so um, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to get up. But except for Sundays and occasionally those breakfast meetings with normal people that eat breakfast at normal hours, uh, I have to do that. I always try to push it a little bit later. I met with Lee D'Amato a couple weeks ago in Westboro for breakfast. And, you know, he was like, hey, how about 8.30? I was like, hey, how about 9? And then the day before, I was like, hey, how about 9.30? <laughs> so we, we did that. But um, we had a great time last night. And uh, we did eat some, some pretty decent food. And I always think about, you know, I think of like Verna and Jackson and the Odells, you know, who are from Texas. Like they've had real barbecue. Like we try. It, you know, Blue Ribbon Barbecue is pretty good. And, but I was happy. Verna said it was good. She said it was pretty good. So I, I got to roll with that because, you know, I've only had Texas barbecue like a couple times, you know, when I've flown down for, uh, for board meetings down there uh, with Streams Ministries. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's, it's good. You know, I just put all that the sauce on it and eat some meat. It's great. Um, so we've been, uh, it's funny. We, yeah, it's hilarious. We've been talking about the apostolic and prophetic, except that I've, that was my intent, but it's really shifted more into um, leadership and what biblical leadership is. But when you really think about what the fivefold ministry gifts are to the church, that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about leadership. We're talking about people gifts to the church to equip for the work of the ministry, not to do all the ministry, but to equip people for the work of the ministry. And what that does is that actually moves you from addition to multiplication. Because if you're looking at traditionally what we've called vocational leadership or this divide between clergy and laity, which frankly doesn't really exist. We're all in full-time ministry. It's just that some people are called and tasked to equip for the work of the ministry. And some people who are in the marketplace are actually called and tasked to do the same. You're called and tasked to equip other people for the work of the ministry. And that's actually just called discipleship. We are called to make disciples of every nation, of every people group. And yes, we have to get decisions for Christ. We need to bring people into salvation, but that's not the end. The end of the game is not having someone fill out a card that's said a prayer. It's actually pulling them into the cycle of discipleship so that they're transformed from one level of glory to another level of glory. Does that make sense? So that's what we've been talking about. And, and I've shifted more. This is why I'm not really good at series because you know, I don't know. Um, I just do what the Lord wants me to do. So we're going to do that today. Turn in your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter four, and we're going to, we're going to read a couple different passages today, but I want to reiterate where we are just so, um, there's no mistake. I also want to say that, um, for a few months now, um, I have felt the Lord kind of pushing me and prodding me to do, um, some live online broadcasts on Wednesday night. And so this past weekend, we didn't talk about it. There was no fanfare. Um, we didn't email about it. We will, I think over time. And I, you know, it might be a couple months. It might be three months. Um, it might be the rest of my life. I don't know. 
but we started Wednesday, by we, I mean me and all of my personalities. Um, just kidding, just kidding. Got to be careful with those sort of things these days. Um, but anyway, you can see my mischievous wheels are turning. I'm, I'm going to keep it home. But we, uh, we, we, I, again, I started Wednesday. <laughs> I started, me and Holy Spirit and Jesus, we all, we all got together and we did a Facebook Live Wednesday night and talked about some things and I don't even remember what I talked about because now my mind is in another place, but it was really good. And uh, we had people from all over the place uh, watching and I got messages from uh, South Africa and from the UK and the West Coast and locally here. And also last Monday night, um, I'll, you know, I don't really talk about a lot about what I do and people don't know. You know, we had some newer people um, you know, coming to the church. I won't out them, but, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess they thought I didn't really work. You know, I think because people have that perception, like the pastors don't really work. They just kind of, they, you know, drink coffee, eat donuts, you know, they have some meetings. And then on Sundays, we got to speak. Um, but I, I do, even though I'm not traveling, I mean, I'm doing a lot of online stuff, um, you know, with, with different people in different nations. And uh, Monday night, I spoke to a conference of 20,000 uh, people in a hostile nation um, in Asia. So uh, it was an amazing thing. When, when they asked me to do it, they were anticipating about 5,000. And they had both um, a, an in-person Conference, and then they also distributed um, video throughout uh, the nation, and then I think even it spilled over into another nation that's less hostile. Um, but it's fascinating what has to happen in order for those things to happen. I mean, there's money involved, and there's there's security involved, and VPNs, and uh, encryption, and all that sort of thing. And uh, it was just an amazing, amazing time. And uh, there are people there that I miss greatly. Um, you know, people, young, young guys that consider me their spiritual father. And um, every once in a while, we do get to chat, um, you know, with some online means. But it's become, in the last two years, very, very difficult to do so with the conditions as we see them now. Uh, so it was a real honor and a pleasure to be able to serve from the man cave. Um, it's great, you know. I had, a, I had a shirt and a jacket, like a suit jacket on top, and jammies on the bottom. It was a wonderful, it was a wonderful thing. I had to remember that so I wouldn't stand up and reveal myself. But I mean, I was covered, you know. It wasn't like just boxers and all like that. But So let's get back to leadership. What does that look like? So Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 13, I'm reading out of the ESV today. And again, we've, been, we've read this. You guys know this by now. If you don't, we're going to read it again anyway. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that's the word for pastor there, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Question number one, have we attained globally to the unity of the faith? 
have we attained to the fullness of the measure of Christ? Therefore, the until peace is still in operation. But we build doctrines around things that we don't comprehend. And so when we hear a doctrine such as the apostles and the prophets and uh, the rest of the fivefold, except not the rest of the fivefold, but some of the fivefold, ceased with the dying of the last apostle or ceased after the canonization of scripture, what we're actually doing is we're building a doctrine around things that maybe we don't quite understand. We're building doctrine around personal negative past experiences. You know, Azusa Street happened uh, in the West Coast. It was a revival that went across the world. And, you know, in the early 1900s, there was no social media. There was no online presence. And so to have a revival that then spread across the world was no small feat. People had to, there was a major sacrifice in order to travel to go to Azusa Street. And people did. And there were people who are leaders, people who thought they were leaders that went to Azusa Street and it was the reawakening of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, the reawakening of the gift of tongues. And people went and they sat in those meetings. They went to those meetings and I don't know the condition of their heart when they went because I wasn't there and I wasn't in their heart, but they didn't manifest the speaking of tongues. There were people around them that did, but they did not. And so therefore, they had to justify why they didn't get what they thought they should have. And so what they did was they built a theology, they built a doctrine based on what didn't happen to them because it's almost a, a another form of pride to say that because it didn't happen to me, it can't possibly happen to we. And so it was another iteration of this doctrine of the gifts ceasing either with the passing of the last apostle or with the canonization of scripture. The reality is that historically, all throughout scripture, when we get away from the manifestation of God, we begin to justify why we're not experiencing him the way that we did in a previous season. You can look at Israel and how Israel departed from the ways of God. Look, I, I you know, grew up in Sunday school and I, I grew up in a Baptist church. I got the word, it was amazing. And I remember being in Sunday school and I would always kind of look down on Israel. So I'm like, oh, those guys, those rebellious people, like they had God and they walked away from God, but we do it all the time. We do it individually in our own lives. We have a, an incredible experience with God. And the further we get away from that experience, we become what the scripture calls nearsighted and blind because we cease to co-labor with God to bring about the things of God in our lives. That's what Peter's writing about when he says his divine power has given us everything we need according to our knowledge of him. Everything that we need for what? For life and for godliness. Both are attributes that are persisting if we continue to cultivate them. And so then he goes on, so, so make sure that you add 
to yourselves, add to your faith. And then he lifts, uh, you know, a number of attributes. And you can look that up. I'm not going to do the work for you. You can look that up. But it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It is. It really is. Because it talks about the increase of God in our lives and the increase of his nature and his character, but how we actually do that where we engage with him, even if we don't have a sense of him in the moment. Because he is constant. The issue is not him. The issue is us. And so we do this. And so out of Azusa Street, there were just numbers upon numbers of denominations that sprung up based on one's own personal experience. And so we had these holiness movements that ended up being very legalistic because when we get into legalism, what we're actually saying is that we need to help God with the work that he wants to do in our lives. We need to help. And so we're going to build a system of rules. We're going to build a system of behavioral modification so that we look right before him. And if we don't adhere to those things, then, you know, we sort of have to self-flagellate. You know, it's, it's what, you know, some, some in the Middle Ages, some monks did. Like they, they beat themselves and other religions do the same. But even in weirder ways, even in this day, you know, we think of, uh, you know, the prophet on the mountain before the prophets of Baal. And he said, okay, you call your God down. And they beat themselves, they cut themselves and all that. We think about that being way back when, but I'm telling you, religions do that today. Because in our pride that we don't even know that we have, we are still trying to earn our way into favor with God. And in Christianity, we do that. We shift our doctrine because we build our thoughts around things that we don't understand or things that don't happen to us. Now, I walked through revival for years and I was greatly impacted by it. I'm still, it still lives in me today, but I, I sort of have this standing up anointing. I was in meetings where bodies were flying and this and that, you know, it didn't really happen to me much. I mean, I, I do mention like there was one conference that I led worship at where over the course of three to four days, you know, I, I got a little loopy twice. But I'm not one to get what we call drunk in the Holy Spirit. I'm not, I just, that's not me. I always wanted it. You know, and with Toronto happening and everybody was getting hit with laughter and all these other manifestations, like I would just cry out to God, like, I want that, I want that. But I would weep at the beauty of the Lord. I weep and I sweat. That's what happens to me when the anointing comes. Like, it's like, it's like bodily fluids. That's my thing. Right? I know. And sometimes there was a time where, I don't know, Maybell thought I wasn't manifesting the spirit enough, so she actually helped me with the bodily fluids by dumping a bottle of water over my head. <laughs> if you guys think this church is weird now, like, you have no idea. You should have been here, like, 10, 15 years ago. Like, there was some, I mean, I'm telling you. As a worship leader, I would always bring an extra shirt because I, because I, I sweat, <laughs> I should probably do that when I speak. I mean, I, you know, some of those nice jackets and things that I wear, the shirts, like I sweat through them. I, I don't even know why I should just come wearing a t-shirt. 
in swimming trunks. But there was one day I came in, I went to the prayer room because I would always go to the prayer room. And, you know, she was crying and screaming and doing the things that she does. And she grabbed that bottle of water and dumped it over my head right before I had to come out and lead worship. And then she goes, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, but I know that you bring a shirt with you, I know that. I was like, I didn't bring a shirt today. <laughs> Mabel. So, yeah. When John Thomas ordained me, he warned me. He was like, we're gonna take an entire bottle of oil and we're gonna dump it over your head. So wear a shirt that you don't care about. Now, if you dig back, I need to go through my Facebook and there's a lot of pictures that I just need to make available just to me. Um, but if you go back uh, into my Facebook, you will find uh, some pictures of that moment and the crazy shirt that I wore. Like you could dump five different kinds of oils on it. You probably never would have known because there was just all kinds of weird things already happening on the shirt. But it wasn't good enough that they dumped the oil over my head. Maybell, once again, came up to me after the fact I was already drenched in oil and she starts rubbing it all in my face and in my hair. And she's like, you gotta get it in you. You gotta get it in you. And somehow she got it like up into my sinus cavity. But I was like the little kid like that went to, you know, I don't know, like a little girl that went to, what's the, the popular band? I don't even know, you know, One Direction or whatever. I don't know what the kids are doing. I'm at that age. I don't know what you're doing anymore. But I was like, I don't want to wash it off. Man, I had like a migraine headache from the oil that was up in my sinus cavity. You would think that because it's anointing, that there's anointing on it, and it's anointing oil that wouldn't happen, but no. And we, we had some sort of reception that afternoon at, at probably John's house, and you know, I was like, I'm not going to wash this off. In my head, I remember that. I'm not going to wash it off. And then my head is pounding. But maybe I'll said I got to get it in me, so I'm going to just let it soak in me. I, there's got to be something else I need. But I didn't get a lot of the other kinds of manifestations that were common. I, I, you know, there was a period of time, and I, I've lost the video since. I want to go find it if I can. But I had, I had downloaded, I had found online and downloaded the, the video of the first moment that Brownsville, the revival in Brownsville broke out. It was on Father's Day. It's that day, you know, where everybody comes together. They go to church and they're marking time because you know that right after church, you got to get home and get the roast and, you know, or, you know, the ham or whatever out of the oven and give your husband another tie. That's what you got to do. So you're kind of focused on that. And they invite Steve Hill to come. He's this fiery evangelist. And... I got this sense that John Kilpatrick, I mean, he's friends with Steve Hill. Steve had asked to come and, you know, that he's just sort of throwing him a bone. Because if you ask somebody to speak on Father's Day, it's sort of like, come and do your thing, but we got things to do. You know, you're sort of pulpit fill for that day, but, you know, you got a half hour and then we got to go. But he, he didn't speak much, but there was this, he kept saying, I know what's going to happen today. I know what's going to happen today. And so he gives this altar call and nobody's really coming because it's, it's Father's Day and it's just an old school AG church, which by the way, sprung up out of Azusa Street. 
And I, I love the, the Assemblies of God. I spent a lot of time in the Assemblies of God. My, my brother is credentialed with the Assemblies of God. My older sister went to, uh, she got her music degree from an Assemblies of God school. I love the Assemblies of God, but there has been a departure from what caused them to spring up out in the first place. And I, I don't say that to cast dispersion. I'm saying that because that's what happens. That's humanity. That's what we do. It's a warning to stay inside the blessing of God, which is his presence, which is his nature and his name that is on the move and we are tasked to move with him. And so he kept saying, Steve Hill kept saying, you know, I know it's going to happen. He's doing this altar call and it's getting almost embarrassing because he's not letting go. And he's saying, come down, come down, come quickly, come quickly. Well, eventually you could see, you know, a couple people just sort of slowly walk to the altar. You've seen that here. You know, people, that they know they're supposed to be there maybe, but, um, you know, we're, we do everything decently and in order, so I'm just going to mosey on down. Or it could have just been, you know, this guy's never going to stop unless somebody goes to the altar. Sometimes I wonder, like, were they tasked? Like, these are the people before the service, you know, John Kilpatrick says, okay, when the altar call comes, you guys, if nothing happens, you guys just kind of mosey on down so we can, we can close the service. You know, I'm not saying, I don't, I don't know if that's happened, but you can see there was a couple people went down and Steve Hill prayed for them, but he didn't stop. And as the process went on, what struck me about the moment was not what eventually happened, but it was the people that gathered up their stuff. They gathered up their big Bible and their notebook and their pen, and they walked away from what would be one of the greatest moves of God in our generation. Eventually, more people came town. Eventually, people started manifesting under the power of the Spirit. And Steve would have to stop and explain what was happening because you have to understand we hadn't really seen this in recent memory. Now, you can go back and you can read uh, the accounts of uh, Wesley and the accounts of Finney, and you will find that these things had happened during the Great Awakenings and in previous revivals. You can read about the Welsh Revival. You can read about Azusa Street. There's nothing new under the sun, but in our generation, people hadn't seen this kind of stuff before. And once again, there were people that would go to these meetings and then not have this particular manifestation or any manifestation come upon them. And so they left in such a way where they adhered to a doctrine based on what they couldn't comprehend. And that's what we do. And so now we have this idea in Ephesians 4 of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or pastors and teachers to equip saints until we all attain to the unity of the faith and all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. We all attain to mature manhood, personhood. We all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that has not happened. Therefore, you have to make a leap of faith, in a sense, to come to the conclusion that these things fell away. The, re the reality is that the gifting and the people gifts and the gifts of the Spirit didn't fall away. We departed from, which we have done all throughout history. 
So do not build a doctrine around that which you do not comprehend. That means in the absence of clarity in scripture or experience, don't make a doctrine out of necessity. Just because we think we have to have a doctrine. Sometimes we just have to embrace mystery. And I had to come to that place even during revival, those revival days, because I saw people manifesting all around me. I went to, my first meeting was in Rhode Island, this church that had New Life Worship Center, which was just sort of a normal-ish church around 100, 150, and they blew up to, I don't know, a few hundred in these meetings in the course of about three weeks. Entire neighborhoods of kids in Winsocket, Rhode Island, and other areas, they were getting, they, they were saved, and not, they're still walking with the Lord today. I know some of these guys, they talk about all the, the crimes they used to commit together and the drugs and this and that. And they were, they were met by God in a moment and delivered. And crazy things happened. And there was this lady, I think she was Hispanic and she was kind of doing the chicken dance in front of me. Like, hey, you know, during worship. And I, I was trying to worship, but I had this lady in front of me and she's doing things that it wasn't happening to me. So therefore, cause I was kind of cynical still. But at the end of that meeting, when, when ministry time had happened, basically everybody was out on the floor except for about three people. I was one of the three. I had to ask the Lord, are you here? And I'm so glad that I did because immediately he said, I'm here. I said, okay, I'm good with it then. Except that I wasn't. It took, still took some time because I, I couldn't reconcile what I was seeing with my rational mind. Doesn't that sound like God? And so to have a people that will be drawn toward this place where God is manifest and not just toward, but living from a place where God manifests so that we maintain the, the character and we maintain the essence of who he is, even though we've left the mountaintop. Because every time we have a mountaintop experience, you better believe that God is going to tell you to go back to the valley. That's what he does. So when we're talking about this fivefold ministry in this context, I could get into the, the gifts of the spirit. That's for another time. We are predominantly discussing leadership. In this Fivefold ministry. They are leaders that are people gifts to the church to empower, to activate, and to release people into their function within the body of Christ. Now in America, we focus on personal destiny. And I'm going to keep talking about this because just because I have the mic. But when you read scripture, it's much less about personal destiny and much more about corporate destiny. The move of a body, the movement of a people. It's more of, less about me, it's way more about we. And this is, I find to be a somewhat uniquely American perspective from an American culture. And that of course, because of our global influence has spilled into other nations, um, but not as many as you think. And so there are other places that I go that are outside of Western culture where they are much more focused on the we than they are the me. 
in this uh, particular nation that I spoke to on Sunday, when you go to the, a meeting with them in person, when they read scripture, everybody reads the scripture together and they do it in perfect synchronicity. It could be 10 people in a room. It could be 500 people in a room. It could be 4,000 people in a room. And they move as one because that's the way they were raised. They were raised in such a way where it was much more about the we than the me. Now that the way they were raised was outside of the context of the kingdom, yet the essence of this idea of unity is well within the kingdom. So when they're transformed from the kingdoms of this earth into the kingdom of our God, when they're transplanted is a better way. Uh, that, that whole thing comes under redemption and now they are enabled in, in, in such a greater way to move and take the kingdom by force because they recognize that it's, it's not just me, it's we. And it's still amazing to me that when we talk about the fivefold that somehow we decided at the end of this thing over the course of a few hundred years that the pastor is the only one of the fivefold that survived the passing of the last apostles. You got to realize that even at 400 AD, evangelists weren't even in that equation. As a matter of fact, evangelists didn't really get folded back in until we had the Great Awakenings, until we had Wesley, until we had Whitfield, until we had Finney. And then we had to figure out what are these guys and what are they doing? Well, they're doing what the Bible said to do. They are evangelists. And so we decided, okay, we're going to, evangelists are okay. We don't really understand it, but we've got to put a name to this thing that they're doing. So, so, and it's more than what we're doing in our local village church. So, so, okay, we'll, we'll do pastors and evangelists. I'm the pastor. That means I take care of my little territory and you're the evangelist. That means you got to go to the, you'll go to the field and you'll do your weird stuff out there. But we still, we don't want to talk about, and teachers, are, I guess, are sort of folded in there, uh, but we still don't want to talk about apostles, and we still don't want to talk about, about prophets, because, you know, people who claim to be prophets are weird, also, and they do weird things, like, you know, they dump bottles, bottles of water over your head, or oil, and they rub things in your face, and they, you know, maybe they wave flags around, and they hit people with it, and they bring a sword out of the prayer room and swing that thing around. I was leading worship one time, we had these flags, and they had the big eagles with these really sharp pointy things at the top and these two women at this conference decided to take the flags and start swinging those things around and so I started singing a spontaneous song about spatial awareness I did I did true story and it took them I don't know two three four five minutes before they realized I was singing about them now there believe me there are times there have been times in my life that I was like man I wish I could be a cessationist because humanity but, but there's weird pastors too there, people are just weird <laughs> and because something doesn't make sense or because someone claims to be something that they're not we take the thing that they claim to be and we just throw it out because it's easier to do that than to raise people into maturity I had a pastor who came to me from a church and he said, Paul, what do you do with the prophetic? What do you do with the prophets? He said, I train them. We disciple them. That's what we do. He said, oh, I don't want to do that. 
because leaders often don't want to allow things to have their infancy. And so our course of discipleship is to make people look right before they are actually right. We want to change the things that are visible instead of dealing with the issues of the heart. You got to stop smoking. You got to stop drinking. Got to cover up them tattoos, young man. Take those earrings out of your nose and all that. I don't know why I'm saying that accent, but I grew up here. I was like, I, all you Texans and Southern people, I, I'm saying you're the source of all. We had plenty up in here in New England. As a matter of fact, when I was, I was young, uh, you know, in the Baptist church, this, this guy came in off the street, the smell of alcohol in his breath and smoke and this and that. And, um, you know, they got him to say a prayer. And then the first thing they told him was, you got to stop smoking. You got to stop drinking. Because that's easy for us. It's visible to us. We don't want to deal with the messes that come along with a baby Christian. And so we want to make sure that, you know, they never mess their diapers again. And it's the same thing with the spiritual gifts. Because we don't want to allow things to have their infancy, we never take what God intended and raise it up into maturity. So when we're talking about leadership, there are all kinds of leaders. And, you know, I've studied um, leadership theory and uh, I've been reading research on the neuroscience uh, in business, the neuroscience of connection, just fun stuff, light reading. And there are certain types of leaders within that group. And, I, and I'm just going to speak in the context of the kingdom, not in the context of just leadership across the board, but I want to speak in the context of what we do in the kingdom, not just in the local church or not just in an apostolic center, but out in the marketplace. And so we have leaders that operate from knowledge. We have leaders that operate from logic and we have leaders that operate from revelation. And sometimes we have leaders that operate in blends of one or the other, but let me segment this thing so it makes sense. So we have a knowledge leader, and sometimes we think of knowledge and logic as the same thing, but knowledge is information that we acquire. Logic is principles that we operate from. Does that make sense? And so we stopped in America requiring logic as a class in public schools about, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. And you can see that today in our inability to engage in dialogue. And we have stepped into the logical fallacy of uh, false dilemma, which just means it's either or. If you disagree with me, then you are categorically wrong in all ways. We don't recognize that there's an issue before us. And so we need to approach this issue equally to find truth because we've already decided that my system of logic is the only one that's absolutely true. Therefore, and you see, and so now it, it, these discussions aren't even discussions. It's just a bunch of people screaming at each other. As kingdom people, we have to get to truth. We have to get to truth. 
And to get to truth, that means that we need to go to direct sources. I could name a whole lot of things that are happening in America today that the discussion around a thing is not based in the thing itself. It's based upon the information that we got from a secondary source. So if you have an issue, for example, with a particular piece of legislation, you better not talk to me about what you think that legislation says unless you've read it. Because I read it. I read stuff and then I, I let people talk and I just smile in, in, internally because I know that a lot of times we're just not in the condition to where we can enter into discussions based on truth because we don't really want to do the work to find truth. It, we just want someone to tell us what truth is. So in the same way, I would say, don't just assume that everything I say is truth. You've got to search out the scriptures. I'm not here to do the work for you. I'm here to provoke you to do the work. And so a knowledge leader is a leader that functions from knowledge. As a leader that functions from knowledge, you will find that you will have the knowledge of what materials are needed to build. But you will lack the discernment to know when to move on the structure and the skill to understand the proper pace of building. And so we have, we see this all the time because we know something to be true. We think that that something has to happen right now. I've had people meet with me over the years that they have the knowledge of something and they think that something has to be in this moment because they don't have the discernment to understand the timing in the season in which something is to be built. A logic leader is someone that works from principle. Now they have to have knowledge, but in that knowledge, they build systems through which they can make decisions. It's a very safe place to be when you operate from logic because things are more predictable. So as a leader that functions from logic, you will find that you, you know the builder's principles, but you also lack the skill to move people into the proper time and season to build for what God wants to do next. Because you're operating from principle instead of breath. This is what happens when someone walks into your church and you understand the principles of what happens in someone's life when they are redeemed and when they will be mature. And so we tend to work from the outside in where Jesus wants to work from the inside out because we understand the principles and the logic of the outside and we understand the principles of behavioral modification, but we don't understand the principles of regeneration of the spirit inside oneself. And so it's difficult to take a step back and disciple someone in the order that he wants to disciple them when we can disciple them in the way that we want to. Because the reality is that a lot of times we want people to look like us instead of looking like him. Not you people here, I'm just saying in general. And so logic leaders will find that they breed insecurity in that they tend not to be secure in decisions because the decision may be deemed irrelevant based on tomorrow's information from which the principles are derived. Does that make sense? 
And you wouldn't think that, that leaders can be insecure, but leaders are insecure all the time. And the insecurity is what, what paralyzes leaders from making decisions because we are afraid that we will get more information tomorrow that will render today's decision irrelevant. And so now you have the revelatory leader. Oh, we love that idea here at the Bridge Metro West. But a leader that functions primarily or solely on revelation will often feed off short-term momentum, but will, not be, but will not build beyond foundational levels. Revelation will cause them to lead through the process of laying and relaying foundations in the name of fresh revelation, but these structures will not build, be built beyond them. So revelatory leaders often start things with a lot of fervor and a lot of fire, but they don't finish. And this is the issue with churches that are built primarily around the prophetic because the prophetic is designed to receive and dispense revelation. That's what you're supposed to do. I'm not knocking that. That is what you're supposed to do. But if there isn't a leader that can take the revelation and put teeth to that revelation so that now we can build something that moves us forward in the word of the Lord that has come, then all we're doing is we're moving from revelation to revelation instead of being built from glory to glory. So in all of these things, there's something that um, Dr. Miles Monroe said, and I believe that he wrote about. And I, and I was looking, I have several of his books on my shelf and several of, my, of his books in my, my iPad. And, and I couldn't find it, but he, he wrote or he spoke something. And he spoke on the spirit of leadership. So there is a position of leadership, but there is a spirit of leadership that comes that takes us to a whole other level. So you can lead through education. And I've been moderately educated. I'm not a good student. I mean, I'm a good lifer. I do life okay. But man, Stu, when you tell me I have to do homework and read books, like I don't want to do it. The Lord's still working on me in that, but it's just like this inherent, I don't know if it's because I was the youngest in the family. I don't, I don't know what the deal is. I just wanted to be bad. I watched a lot of happy days when I was a kid and I wanted to be the Fonz. <laughs> I was four years old walking around the Baptist church telling people when I was 18, I was going to legally change my name to Fonz. <laughs> Some of y'all like, what is he talking about? So you can lead through education. You can lead through charisma. It's very compelling to lead from and through charisma. Or you can lead through what Miles Monroe calls the spirit of leadership. There's a grace and a favor on your life such that what you speak pierces hearts and drives them to respond in kind to a common goal. In that, there is an element of knowledge and there is an element of, of logic and there is an element of revelation. But we pull all of those things together as the Spirit of God moves upon us to then receive all of those things from every joint that is supplying the needs and the, the, 
the purposes of the body of Christ according to the will of God. And we take those things and we put teeth. It's like putting chains on a wheel driving up a snowy mountain. If you don't have the chains on, you, you're, you're not going to make it. My parents moved to South, uh, South Africa. I got South Africa on the brain. My parents moved to Costa Rica in 1993. If you're an empty nester and you don't want your kids to live with you when they graduate from college or drop out of college, then just leave the country. <laughs> I was home for three weeks and they were gone. I never saw them again. No, that's not true. It's a great place to visit. But my dad, you know, he was in a particular line of work of government contracting. Um, anyway, but he, uh, he was well-versed in communication systems. And there was this Christian radio station network that broadcast all across Costa Rica. It was the only radio station that hit every part of Costa Rica, which Costa Rica is a small nation, but it's very mountainous. And so to, in order to broadcast across the nation, you have to have repeaters on the tops of all the mountains, which most radio stations, actually all radio stations did not do that except for this Christian radio station. The only issue is that all of their equipment and technology was based on 1950s technology. And so he went in a truck and went up every mountain and rebuilt all the technology of all the repeaters and updated that. And then the last thing to do was to update the technology in the actual studios of the, the Christian radio station network. And you could go anywhere. Man, I tell you, I went in some remote places of Costa Rica. You know, I stayed in places that were like a hotel. And you like pull back the covers and there were like hairs the bed and you know you you wake up and there's like this green snake like slithering on the floor and you open the door and there's like giant iguanas and things like that or like this one place there were like cows and a donkey like right outside the window this ain't your mama's resort you ain't buying a timeshare there and then you turn the light on and there's like a a cockroach that's about five feet long with giant teeth ready to consume your flesh just waiting for you to turn the lights out again when you hit that cockroach you better believe it's going to make a sound can I get an amen I didn't think so so he went up all these mountains but the only way they could get up the mountain was with chains on the wheels. That's what leadership does. That's when you have the fivefold working together. That's when you have the prophet that's bringing revelation and the apostle that is there to take the revelation and say, okay, this is how we build with that. It's chains on the wheel. You've got to have the wheel, but then you've got to put chains on it to get to the mountaintop where God is calling you. Does that make sense? So, those who have the courage to do what the spirit of leadership tells them to do will find that your friends will try to take it from you. That will happen. Other leaders will tell you that it can't be done. That will happen. But here's the key. When the spirit of leadership comes upon you, if you back off, it will lift and it might 
never come back again. See, we, we want to, we focus on grace and mercy. You know, those things are salvation based, right? But when God is calling us to something and we back away from it, it's up to him whether he cycles back around to give you the favor that he wanted to give you in the previous season. It's not that he won't put you in a position where you can grow, but I'm telling you, it's like what we talked about last week. When, when you, there are tests that if you fail the test, you will destroy the trajectory that he wanted for you. I know a particular leader, I won't, I won't say his name, he was a leader, but I sat a couple years ago, a few years ago with the guy who mentored him, his spiritual father. And this guy was a global leader. And he consistently, he was given test after test after test. He was put under discipline more than people even know. Until there was such a time that he was given his final test and he didn't pass. And the level of power and anointing that was on him lifted. And to this day, and, and his spiritual father is weeping, telling us this in a, in a restaurant, in a private conversation. He's weeping and saying, to this day, he's desperately wanting to get back to where he was in the Lord. But I don't think he's ever going to get there. He was given so many chances. When I say these things, you better believe that the fear of the Lord is on me. It's no small thing because I know that in the things that I say, I will be tested. That's why I don't like to talk about offense or being unoffendable. There's a lot of things. I don't, you won't hear me teach it on patience. Don't ever tell someone to pray for patience. Don't ever ask the Lord to humble you. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Because if you don't do it, eventually he will. So if you fail to be courageous in your calling and you back off, the spirit of leadership lifts and he may or may not come back. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13. And this is a dangerous thing because there's a whole other half dozen messages in here, but we're not going to do this. I'm going to try to crash close this thing. And here I'm going to read out of the New American Standard Version. Remarkably enough, I found uh, that I liked the way that the NIV translated this, um, but I don't, I don't use the NIV at all, except once. Last week I used it. I just didn't tell anybody. Hebrews 13, 9 through 14. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Charismatic prophetic church. I do need to stop there just for a moment because this is where the prophetic church ended up because on the, 
the other side of revival, on this side of the revival of the 90s, there was such pressure to have fresh revelation that we ended up developing teachings and ideas and theologies that ended up being varied and strange. And some of those, like the first generation, teaching was pretty solid in the realm of the prophetic, but the second and third generations that put just a little twist on the original because we can't, we feel like we can't just stay on the original. And so we start creating different iterations of teachings until, for example, we start doing online workshops or personal mentoring to teach people how they can ascend and descend from heaven at will. It's Gnosticism. It's teaching people that if I give you this secret knowledge, then you can step through the dimensions according to your own will. And those people don't have the secret knowledge, but I'm going to give you the secret knowledge. And so in that, we end up developing that system of logic. We end up falling into that logical fallacy of false dilemma, saying that, well, I have this and you don't, therefore I'm right and I don't really have to listen to you anymore. It is a spirit that is not from God that descends upon you when you enter into that and I can recognize it now. I couldn't 10 years ago, but now I can see it coming. Because you, not you, but people, when that comes upon them, they will start to become useless in the context of community because we start to break the bonds of, of community and unity and order to do with the secret knowledge that I have received to, to operate under my own will instead of the will of the Father that says in the word of God already, make every effort to preserve the unity of the brethren. And so people that were committed to volunteer in certain ministries all of a sudden just don't show up. And there's this glaze and this malaise that falls over people's faces because our personal experience becomes more important than our faithfulness. Okay, that's not in my notes. I told you the scripture is dangerous. So verse nine, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. This is what the writer's talking about. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, in this case, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. The spirit of leadership will ask you to do things that are outside the camp. I can remember John Paul Jackson talking about this years ago. The spirit of leadership will cause you to do things outside the camp. This is the principle that is behind this verse 13. 
There are principles that are embedded in proper exegesis. And I could exegete this passage and tell you what this is really about. I mean, really what this is about is going outside the normal constructs of our society and step outside of that place to where Jesus is so that we can bear the same reproach from the world that he bore. Because you better believe when you stand for Christ in, a, in an unjust situation, people will look down upon you. But in the same way, that principle of leadership and that spirit of leadership will ask you to step outside of the camp like Moses did, like Joshua did for years, day after day after day, meeting with the Lord outside the camp until the time came that he was tasked to lead the people into the promised land. And even in that moment, he was looked down upon along with Caleb because when he went into the promised land and he saw the giants, all he could see was the power of God moving and going before them. He wasn't stuck to the systems and the logic of this world and in this way because he had already been before the Father day after day, night after night, meeting with him outside the camp so that when the call of God came, when the purpose of God came, he was not impressed by the resistance of the enemy. He was impressed by the power of God. That's what the spirit of leadership does. But here's the issue with our ideas sometimes in the revelatory church. Sometimes we want to go outside the camp just to be different. Or like what I just talked about. Sometimes we want to go outside of the camp because we've, we think we've got some secret knowledge. But here's the thing. We go outside the camp because that's where he is. And when we go outside the camp to where he is, you better believe you're going to see other people. If you think that you're in the heart of the Father and you look to your left and you look to your right and you don't see the people that he loved so much that he sent his only son to die for, then you're in a different heart, not his. It might feel good. You might get warm fuzzies. It might have a sense of glory. But there is an angel of light that still retains some of the glory and the power that he received by proximity with the Father. Some of those things don't go away over time. It's just that the, the purpose of it is twisted and perverted. And so it can have a feel of godliness, but denies the power thereof. So we go outside the camp because that's where he is, and that is where we burn. That is where we are shown what is in his heart for us to receive, for us to give, and for us to do. But it's always on the other side of burning. Fire comes to refine us. In revival days, we thought fire was fun because everything was fun. The Lord was allowing things to have their infancy. But when the refiner's fire came that we all sang for, that we all prayed for in those songs, 
Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy. Man, there were just hundreds of thousands of people that sang that song. And then when the refiner's fire came, because we said we wanted to be refined and we want to be holy, we didn't know what was happening in our lives. We sang that other song, you know, fire fall down, fire fall down on us, we pray. Fire burns always. And sometimes the fire comes and falls and you just get to stand around and roast marshmallows. And that's fun. I like s'mores, yeah, some s'mores. But oftentimes the fire comes and he asks you to step into it. It's his grace and his mercy when the fire falls just upon you. But it's a test of obedience when he asks you to step into the middle of it. That's what the spirit of leadership will do. If you operate from courage, if you operate with courage, because we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are a people of faith that preserve their souls, according to Hebrews 10, 39. So we don't go outside the camp just for the sake of being different. You will know in your calling, in your quest for leadership, when you have gone outside the camp under his direction by the spirit of leadership, when you are effective, when you are efficient, when you are productive, and when you are constructive, that's when you know the kingdom of God is measurable in its expansion. And if you think that you've been outside the camp and yet you have not been effective, you have not been efficient, you have not been productive, and you have not been constructive, then you need to start to honestly self-evaluate which camp you're standing in. Because it's likely not him. I feel, feel the fear of the Lord on that. But constructive means that you build up. Productive means that you produce an abundance. And effective actually means that you're successful. Either in a kingdom sense or in the marketplace or whatever it is that you lay your hand to. But in the process of success, you better believe that you will walk through fires of refining and test upon test upon test. There will be mountaintops and there will be valleys and you are called to tread through both. The spirit of leadership will lead you outside the camp. The spirit who is holy will descend upon you like fire where you will burn. There is a cost, but there is a reward. Let's stand together. There's this focus that I believe that the Lord is putting on these messages, that which was not what I intended when I started. My intent was to do really easy teachings on the apostolic and prophetic, because I got so many notes, I don't even have to think about it. And I realized I, I went to 
Pastor Manny's church and taught on the apostolic and realized I'd never even taught it here because it's just so second nature. It's like, oh, I've never taught that. We've had other people teach it, which is fine. But as we've stepped through this thing, I hear the Lord saying, many are called, but few are chosen. I want this room to be filled with chosen people. But he puts before you life and blessing, death and evil. He puts before you blessing and curse. He has put within you the power of the tongue to speak blessing or curse. Choose wisely. Just close your eyes. The voice of the Lord is calling you to step out of the camp. It was in that stepping out that led Jesus to walk back in to Jerusalem where he was met with exaltation and worship and honor. And just a few days later, he was met with the cross. This Friday, we're gonna talk about the cross right here. We invite you to come. It's one of the most powerful services of the year. But today, he's put a fire before you. And he's saying, would you step in to the fire? Will you still trust me if it burns? Will you still trust me if I touch you in the place of your pain? Will you still trust me if I cause you to molt, to shed the things of yesterday so that you can step into what I'm doing today? Will you still trust me if I say to you, forget and let go of that which is behind you so that you can lay hold of what is ahead of you? It's a scary place, it's a scary thing, but it's in the Word. Would you step into the fire today? All across this room, would you step into the fire today? For some of you, this means this, that you're saying, even online, that you're, you're saying yes to Jesus for the first time. I'm not talking about believing that he existed. I'm talking about making him the primary authority in your life. So that when he says, hey, step into that fire, step into that place where I will transform you, well, where I will refine you, step into that place where I will cause the spirit of the living God to descend upon you. And there are things that will happen in you and outside of you that you do not comprehend, but don't build a system of logic on things that you don't understand. Just embrace that I am an eternal God, that I am the same yesterday, today, and forever, that I'm the author and the finisher of the faith. And you don't know the last chapter 
of your life. You know how the story ends for the corporate body of Christ, but you don't know how it ends for you. What part of the story that you walk in, but will you still trust and embrace that which you don't know? Will you step into the fire today? Do you stop leading from your mind and start leading from the spirit of leadership that I want to pour upon you for your household and your workplace and your community in this church? Would you step into the fire today? Some of you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time, and some of you need to say yes to him again to make him that primary authority in your life. You come to church, you mark time, but is he the authority of your life Monday through Saturday? So let's pray this prayer together. Just pray this after me. We're we're all going to pray it because there's power in these words. It's no small thing that we do right now. So I'm telling you, this is your day for salvation. This is your day for transformation. This is your day to truly rededicate, dedicate your life to Him by stepping in the fire. So pray after me. God, I want to know you. And I accept your gift of life to me. I accept Jesus' death and his resurrection from death that reverse the curse of sin and death in my life. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I turn from my way and I turn toward your way. Would you please reveal your love to me now? And I will follow you for the rest of my life. Thank you for hearing me and honoring my request. In Jesus' name. Now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would move in this room, that you would blow afresh, God, that you would create bonfires all across this room, that you would uh, put before us that recognition that we can step into blessing or we can step into curse, that we can move in blessing or we can move in curse, that we can move in life or we can move in death. God, would you put the fires before us right now and give us the courage to step in. Give us the courage to step out of the norm, to step out of our systems of logic based upon lies that we believe to be true. Would you give us the courage this day to step into the fire, to step into the flame. God, you have poured it out. You have poured your spirit out on all flesh and you put this fire before us today, God. Oh, I pray in the name and from the name of Jesus that courage would strike at the heart of everyone within the sound of my voice right here, right now, and that we would step into the fire, step into the fire, step into the fire, step into the fire. Thank you for listening to this message from the Bridge Metro West in Natick, Massachusetts. Paul David Gidry is the senior pastor at the Bridge. For more information about the Bridge Metro West family, our gatherings and events, visit www.bridgemetrowest.com or call us at 508-651-2000.
0277.